I'm Sandy Swallow. I'm Okalala Lakota and Northern Cheyenne. I've been an artist for over 30 years and through my artwork have portrayed my heritage. Now I'm starting a brand new venture called Lakota Link and I'm here to share with you and I hope you enjoy it. Lakota Link. Greetings from the home of the Seven Council Fires land of the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaties, bringing stories old and new of Lakota values, courage, respect, wisdom, to name a few. I would like to introduce to you my friend, Zach Dushnall, and he's quite an accomplished person. He's right now the executive director of Intertribal Ag. That's kind of how we met him. He's also an enrolled member of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. So, Zach, tell me, how have you been doing? Oh, we've been we've been doing very well, all things considered. Uh, truly fortunate to be able to do the work that we do especially in light of the, the the current situation with the coronavirus and and all that that brings with it. It really uh, escalates the level of work that we have to do as our ag producers, especially our Indian ag producers, are really an afterthought and, and really overlooked in any of the assistance that's being cont- contemplated to help help deal with the economic impacts of of the current situation and that's kind of that aligns pretty well with what the iac has always been about can uh, can you uh you know for my listeners out there that really have no idea you know what iac is and and uh can you just give them a little brief history of like when it started and and how you got involved in it absolutely so the IAC was created in 1987, and it was on the heels of another nationwide crisis. It wasn't a pandemic at that point in time. It was the national farm debt crisis. In amongst that farm debt crisis, we had some natural disasters in the Great Plains and the Rocky Mountain regions, really a uh, terrible winter weather. So our, our tribal leaders went to D.C. to advocate for some assistance for Indian country. And one of the members of the Senate committee that was hearing them out said, why do Indians need this special help? Why can't they get by with what everybody else is doing? And said, we'll help, but we need to understand this situation a little better. They they offered some, some feed assistance to the reservations in these two regions and it may have been even a broader swath of assistance that was offered but they requested that a study be done and the IAC was formed out of that study a working group of tribal leaders and Bureau of Indian Affairs officials held meetings all across the country to really try to figure this this out some of the 
some of the uh, findings in that study were some of the some of the issues that we still continue to work to address today. Uh, improving access to credit for Indian country, improving access to value-added opportunities, you know, infrastructure to to take our product to the next level, extension services, uh, better access to conservation programs. So the IAC was, they reported back to the Senate and the senators told them, you need to form an organization to advocate for your interests because none of that was being brought to the attention of the uh, government officials at that point in time. So the Intertribal Eye Council was spawned out of that and i think there was something like 84 tribes at the original symposium and we've been working since then to to try to address those issues and i got involved in the iac genetically be you know right then because my dad was one of the one of the guys on the steering committee that was holding the hearings across the country because he was the chairman of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe at that point in time. And I didn't know that he was doing this at that level. Of course, I was still a, a teenage kid, and my mind was on a lot of other things. Other things, sure. <laughs> not necessarily the greater ag economy. And, but in the 1990s, I decided I was going to come home and be part of the family ranch. So I bought a herd of heifer calves, and the idea was I was going to grow those heifers, breed them, and sell a handful of those heifers to make my first payment. I got in at uh, $560 a head, and by fall, the market had collapsed so far that I was contemplating selling $555 bred heifers. So paid $5 for the learning experience per head. Oh, I know. You know, I it always kind of burns me up when I hear people comment, "Oh, the why are those farmers getting welfare?" <laughs> you know, and yeah. when they comment that, you know, it's the same sort of comment that you hear, "Well, you know, if you need groceries, just go to the grocery store." You know, don't, <laughs> and and it's the same mentality and mindset and but you know honestly that's why we're here to educate the people to let them know that um the, there's a fragile food chain out there and we need to uh, be honoring and understanding you know the the producers the ranchers and farmers and all those that produce our food and among other things and i was trying to think back about when we when i met you it's been quite a few years. It it was. It was probably shortly after that because because of 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 those economic realities of my entry into the into the ag production world, I sought part time work. And you know, I was trying to figure out how to start a family and feed a brand new daughter back then. And I was flipping through one of the periodicals that we received there at at mom and dad's place, and it was it was called the Indian Ag Link, and that was a quarterly periodical that was published by the Intertribal Ag Council way back when. And in the back, they were looking for a farm advocate, 
I didn't know what farm advocate was, but I knew I could use the, the $10 an hour that they were offering. So I reached out to Greg Smithman, the first executive director of the IAC, and introduced myself and just, just kind of cold called him and said, you know, I'd like to be doing this work for you here. And he said, well, I know your dad. And I was like, I didn't know that. <laughs> so after I got off the phone call with Greg, uh, I shared with him where I was at and he he relayed to me that, you know, it sounds like exactly what they're looking for because you're experiencing firsthand what we expect you to be helping people with as a farm advocate. And so, that that in itself is really valuable. I mean, oh yeah, you know, that you knew the hardships. Yeah. Yep. And by virtue of that, and then, then I went out and asked the old man about it, and I wish I'd have recorded it because you know we lost him in 2012. So a lot of a lot of the knowledge about the creation of the IAC and and the circumstances of the times left with him. But I uh, got the got the job with the IAC, and I I worked as a farm advocate there for three years under the tutelage of Greg Smithman and Ross Racine and a lot of other folks that I consider to be mentors believe I ran into you and Wayne at one of our annual events to start with. That's what I thought. That's what I told Wayne. You know, Lakota Link is, I actually am doing this to, to share stories old and new and that has to do with Lakota values. And so in a way, I guess I'm kind of wondering, what what did your dad tell you, or did he uh, was you able to remember, you know, some of the reason reasoning of him starting this help? help well, him? absolutely, a help, and and it really all ties back to Indian country making the most of its natural resources economically. You know, back in the '80s. During that farm crisis, there were dozens of tribal range units here on Cheyenne River that went unleased. Not the Indians didn't have enough money to come in and get the permit, and they they couldn't even find a non-Indian to use them a lot in a lot of cases. That's what we were coming out of. The great part about the Indian Ag Work Group report is that that you know Indians don't have access to credit the way other people do. Ever since then, we've worked to try to try to bring some equity to that. We still struggle, but we're building other solutions now, alongside of of what's already what's already there that we're improving access to. You know, the, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, uh, my blip, but I don't mean to interrupt you, interrupt oh, you. But I actually, you know, I I am linking what I feel is Lakota value to this talk. And so I was thinking about you and Wayne and I was talking about you. And one thing, one value that I feel you really have had is fortitude. Mm -hmm. And, you know, (laughs) that's just hanging in there through thick and thin and just not giving up. And, now it's paid off for you, although 
the other value is probably sacrifice because, uh, like Wayne said, you've had to sacrifice a lot of your time and, and energy for this. So it's a vision, I, I would say, it sounds to me like your dad started out with, but you took the mantle on and are carrying it on. Ab- absolutely. And I would say that the, and I don't know that there's a specific described Lakota value that that really encompasses this, but my observation is that it's a commitment to your tribe, to your community that that was instilled in me by my parents, instilled in my dad by his parents. And it's a commitment to that to that greater good, you know, the tribe, the tribe first and then then myself. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of the, the greatest supporters of of tribal government and tribal sovereignty that I know. And, you know, I we're, we're experiencing that firsthand here and on Oglala where our tribes are exercising that sovereign right and and asking people their business as they come and go and. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm applauding our tribal leaders for taking that step. I think that's exactly what we should be doing. Other folks that don't see the value in that, maybe don't share that, that same Lakota concept, you know, and I, and I don't know what the, what the, what the proper word is for it, but it, it is definitely a sense of community and, and just, really hearkening back to that tribal nature. Well, we I was asked to do artwork for the uh, 1868 Fort Laramie Treaties exhibit through Carnes, which is a Center for American Indian Research. And, and in doing that, I, I always kind of knew about the, the treaties in a peripheral way, but not... But boy... I read that over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, a lot of general public, they just don't understand that yeah. we are sovereign nations. We we have the right. Mm-hmm. And, and with that right comes the responsibility to, to be generous, be brave, gain wisdom. You know, all of the Lakota values are encompassed in that, in having that right. And... It's, it's, I'm really fortunate to get to express that in my everyday work. So tell me a little bit, perhaps a little more personally, how has the quarantine and, you know, also the virus, so to speak, um, how has that affected you or has it in, in any way personally, like on your ranch? On the ranch, per se, not so much yet. I think we're Indian Indian ag operators are made up of about sixty percent livestock growers, and I don't think we're going to really start to feel the pain tangibly until fall when we're trying to sell sell calves or lambs or or chickens or whatever it is that we're growing buffalo or whatever we're growing, and that that's part of the real concern that we have and 
even though we're not going to realize that loss, we will have nothing for any assistance to, to fill in for until that time. Our equity is eroded, and this is where livestock is unique from, from crop production. Our production assets are tied inextricably to the market value of our product. Our cow value is derived from the value of the calf she raises. Our ewe value is derived from the value of the lamb and the wool that they provide. So when the price of calves plummets the way it has in the last few months, my ability to go to a financer and borrow money to get to the next sale of my production is affected. I, I become a higher risk borrower at, for no, no reason that I can control, and I pay a higher interest rate or the amount of capital that I can borrow is reduced based on the equity value of my production asset. That's not the case when you're, when you're talking about farmers or crop growers. You know, um, I grew up, well, I lived with my Aunt Jo, Josephine Hamilton, and um, she had quite a big ranch on the uh, southwest corner of Pine Ridge Reservation. And I spent some of my teenage years with her. Now, I'm, I'm keeping track a little bit through that my family down there down in Pine Ridge, and I was talking to my cousin, and she said uh, they they needed some beef, and mm-hmm. so they decided to go to to Gordon to to the locker plant to purchase some hamburger, and when they got there, they were talking to them, and they was thinking about just bringing in, you know, a, a steer or something to be wrapped and stuff. And they were told that they are booked up until March of 2021. And and not only that, you know, they also called Hot Springs. I mean, this is putting it in in very common sense, simple terms, you know. I mean, that's good for, of course, for the places that do that. But it's a hardship on the people that need to need to feed out their cattle and and hopefully they could sell them to other people but then that resource is locked up so you know our i mean that that's just a real basic thing to me as as yeah. uh you know feeding my family and stuff and i think people need to know that that this we have a frailty there in that food chain and I think another thing that we need to make sure that we highlight every chance we get, Sandy, is that the when the consumer goes to the store and they see $8 a pound on that hamburger, that's not getting back to the producer. That is an artificial price that is created by that fragile food system that we've got that really doesn't borrow any lessons from the ag producers that support it. If if I want to have beef in my freezer, I start thinking about that now so that I'm growing the one that I want all year, if not for 18 months. And 
our food system is built on capitalizing on this instantaneous access to food that our consumers have come to rely on. And when that instantaneous access to food is disrupted by something like this, the price goes up for the consumer and the price goes down for the producer and the multinational conglomerate corporations put more money in their pocket at our expense. So we really have to start to think about this on a, on a longer time horizon and, and help our consumers understand, you know, we, we can grow you exactly the beef you want, but it'll get in your freezer in November this year or April of next year after it can get to the processing plant. So let's start to plan ahead for that and, and, and capitalize on that. The more we can build that connection, the more we're going to see these local and regional processing centers pop up. The old hometown butcher might make a, make a significant revival here coming out of this because we've, we've been peddling a little, a little beef off the place here for about, Oh, two, two and a half years. I, I was doing it for a couple years, uh, sort of in a black market fashion. And then Kelsey stepped in here and is doing everything legitimately by the book inspected and the whole nine yards. And what, what we can show to any customer that wants to see it is that not only will you buying this side or quarter or share of this beef from, from DX beef be a better economic outcome for you and your family it also more directly benefits the producer and we're keeping those dollars circulating closer to home. We still have to take our beef off the reservation to get it processed because the, the inspected processing facilities don't exist yet on Cheyenne River, but I believe they're going to come out of this. I, I, I hope so. You know, uh, in fact, that would be a goal, you know, that mm-hmm. I think should be uh, started to work towards because I, I'm all for Made in America. And, yeah. I, you know, we have gotten, well, we've gotten away from that. We need to step back now with this, although it's been a very much of a hardship and it's been a horrible ordeal for a lot of people health-wise and stuff. It It has been a reality check for us to think, how are we going to move forward? Yeah, and I... I don't think I'm even necessarily in the made in America camp. Mm-hmm. I'm in let's let the consumer know where the product came from so they can make a decision with their dollar. And we're seeing as a result of this, we're seeing our congressional delegations write letters to the secretary of agriculture and say, Hey, see what you can do about getting mandatory country of origin labeling on these things. Well, you know, the same congressional delegation that voted to repeal it in 2015. We had mandatory country of origin labeling on our beef in 2014. After 10 years of trying to get it implemented, it finally got implemented. And and I don't think it's a small coincidence that we made the most on our live cattle ever at that point in time. We repealed country of origin labeling, and that was one of the crises that we weathered. Our cattle value decreased by a third. 
And now we've got our congressional leaders talking about how do we go about putting country of origin labeling in place in a way that it doesn't adversely affect trade. Well, maybe we should just give the consumer a choice to know where their product is coming from. And that's what this local and regional movement really has the power to do. Bring back that sense of community that Indian country has known for years, take care of that first. And then we start to trade with our neighbors with the surplus for things that they can provide that we don't have. Can you tell our listeners uh, with with Intertribal Ag Council, that's a nonprofit. Is, yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. And is there a way they could donate to that uh, or, or not? I mean, I, I don't know. There, there absolutely is. We're a 501c3, and, and people can make tax-deductible donations to 501c3 entities. And if someone feels compelled to do that based on the work that we're doing, we would welcome any contribution. What what helps almost as much for us from the perspective of, of individuals is lending your voice to our work. So we've got right now on our website, IndianAg.org, a lot of call to action items specific to the coronavirus uh, pandemic and the, and the adverse economic outcomes that we're realizing. Can We've you got draft can you letters. can you explain that to a little more? <clears throat> the the call to action. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So fundamental to to maintaining our ag economy is some financial certainty, and a lot of our producers are borrowers. Many of them exist in what we call credit deserts. That's where fair and reasonable access to credit does not exist as a norm. Because of that, our first inclination when this crisis started to roll out and we started to see the adverse impacts, we decided, you know, we got to try to get some some loan relief to our producers. So we did a lot of research and, and put together a what we feel is a very reasonable list of, of solutions that folks that are listening can call their congressman and say, hey, have you taken a look at the at the farmer and rancher loan relief proposal that the Intertribal Ag Council has put together? And we've got a, a script for producers. We've got a letter for consumers that are realizing food shortages. They can help us by lending their voice to the solutions that we've identified over the last 37 years in Indian country agriculture economies. Well, but don't, you know, donations are always welcome, especially coming from our brothers and sisters in Indian country, because we know the value of a dollar in one of our economies. So the thought that somebody might be willing to give those, that precious commodity to the IAC is, is really heartwarming to us. We don't actively seek donations from individuals because because we understand the economic reality of Indian country. We bang on every door at the federal government we can find 
and we're getting ready to roll out a new method for philanthropy to participate in the work of the Intertribal Ag Council and others in this space. Uh, should have that out by fall. Oh, good. Well, you know, time's gone so fast because oh, yeah. it's been so interesting to visit with you. And I certainly hope that you'll be willing to visit with us down the road. And I I thank you for letting us know how, uh, no matter how small it is, perhaps there's a way if we all pull together that we can we can help one another. And thank you, Zach. Oh, it's been a pleasure. And the website is indianag.org. My email is Zach, Z-A-C-H, at indianag.org. And my personal cell phone number is 605-222-3852. I welcome any and all conversations. Well, thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed our segment. You know, I I enjoy visiting with the people. And if you did, go to sandyswallowgallery.com where you can find my artwork and find some history and some background. Please subscribe to it. Or if you have some comments, we would love to hear your opinion. This is a new adventure for us, and I value your opinion. This song is written and sung by my good friend, Quincy Goodstar. Lakota Link is here to share Lakota values. God bless you on your journey. Wopila, thank you for joining us.